Amen. Thank you, Brother Vaughn. Let's stand, please. Psalms 132. Psalms 132 this evening. Psalms 132. So good to see a good crowd out tonight. It's Thanksgiving weekend, and uh, we have a lot of a lot of our family, church families away, but it's good you're here in town, and if you're going away this week, please drive safely or fly safely wherever you go to. Psalms 132. I'd like to read the whole chapter, but for time, we're just going to read the first 10 verses, and I'm going to, we're going to have a little bit of a Bible study time tonight, encourage you from this passage of Scripture, and I don't know if you've ever been like me, you kind of read Psalms 132 and trying to find out what, what is, what's the message behind this, this great message on it, and uh, we're praying that this evening God will help us just to kind of grasp what's here. Psalms 132. Now, if you don't have a King James Version Bible, please look to the person next to you who probably has one, and make sure that you share with them, and they'll help you find your place. Let's do this tonight. I like to hear God's people read the Word of God, and I'd like you to read loudly and clearly with me tonight. I'm going to ask the men to read verse one, the odd number of verses with me, and the ladies, you read the even number of verses. Men, odd, women, even. Verse 10, we all read it together. We're going to stop at verse 10. We all understand what's going on? We're all there this evening? Everybody awake? Okay, all right, good, we're good. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. Ladies? Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. Until I find out a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy saints shout for joy. Everyone, verse 10. For thy servant David's sake, turn not the face of thine anointed. Now, I'm going to give you some prelude to some things I'm going to repeat here, but I want you to notice if you've got a pen out this evening. Verses 1 to 10 is David talking to the Lord. Verses 1 to 10 is David making a vow to God. That's important to set the stage for tonight. Verses 1 to 10 is David making a vow to the Lord. Notice verses 11 to 18. Verses 1 to 10 is God ta- uh, David talking to God. Verses 11 to 18, God is talking to David. Verses 11 to 18 is response from God. It's God's vow to David. Look at verse 11 with me. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. You know what that says? That's a definition of the promises of God. Amen. That's a definition of the promises of God. The Lord has sworn in truth. He will not turn from it. This evening, I'm taking my title of the message this evening from Second Peter chapter 1, I think it's verse 3, where it speaks about exceeding great and precious promises. And I want us to see tonight for just a few minutes, and uh, Brother Dave said, Pastor, you're, something's wrong with you. I said, what happened? And he said, uh, you, you're starting a new trend. I said, what happened? He said, you ended Wednesday night two weeks ago earlier, and you caught us off guard this morning. You ended earlier. What are you going to do for the, is that the trend we're going now? And I said, well, I'm not sure. I just got back from vacation. We'll see after I get back into the, 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 you know, the normal thing of ministry here in a couple more weeks and see what happens here. But I might end a little bit earlier tonight just to get you home on time. I want to be respectful of that. But I want you to see tonight, regardless what time we end, there's some important truths here. 
And there's some promises we need to claim, and God wants us to get a hold of that this evening. And so I pray this evening God will speak to you about exceeding great and precious promises. Father, bless your word. We know that the entrance of thy word giveth light. We know that, Lord, that the word of the Lord is forever settled in heaven. And that's a blessing. And though heaven and earth will pass away, thank you tonight that your word will never, never pass away. We thank you. We hold in our possession the precious seed of God's word. The Bible says being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of the Lord, which liveth and abideth forever. Thank God there may be trends that happen. And thank God today there may be there may be things that pass away. But the word of God is always the same. It's unchangeable from ever and forever. And tonight, Lord, once again, there is a promise here. There are some lessons here. There is doctrine here. There are truths here. There's practical application here. There are things we need to grasp and pull around our hearts and embrace in our bosom as the precious, holy, wonderful word of God. Father, grow us in your word tonight. Father, love us through your word tonight. Father, help extend your mercies to us this evening. Father, speak to us. Help weary hearts and weary minds to be renewed and refreshed because the Bible says that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall, uh, they shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. And Lord, tonight we need a bathing and a cleansing, a purifying from the truth of your word. Jesus prays, sanctify them through thy truth for thy word is truth. And tonight we realize that we have in our possession the engrafted word which is able to save souls. And tonight... You know the spiritual need here. You know what has to happen here this evening. And I pray that, Lord, the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God, would be completely uninhibited in His working. We pray there not be any resisting of the Holy Spirit of God. We pray there not be any gnashing of teeth against the Spirit of God, but a great liberty whereby the Spirit is able to work in our hearts and we'd see a change in our hearts as we seek to abide in You and let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom. Would You bless our time together? Would You encourage our hearts? Would You strengthen us? Undertake for our, our church family right now that's watching by live stream, some on vacation, many who are sick and infirmed and recovering from different things. And we're just praying for special mercies in their bodies and grace. And so tonight, bless this time we have together. In Jesus' holy, precious name, we pray. All of God's people say, <coughs> maybe seat it. <coughs> it's entitled, I'm Going Higher. And uh, Psalms 120 to Psalms 134 are called the Psalms of Ascent. As you remember, the 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 uh, Jews, as they made their pilgrimage coming up the mountain to Jerusalem, would recite these psalms. They memorized these psalms. You know, one of the things that inspires me about the Hebrews is their great memorization of the Word of God. And so they they memorized these psalms as they made their ascent up the mountain to the holy city of Jerusalem. They repeated these psalms. The priests, when they ascended to the temple, they would walk their way. It had 15 steps. And as they made their way, they would recite each one of these psalms on the steps. Would you notice in Psalms 132, we're on the 13th step. We're almost at the top. And that's a wonderful thing. It's hard to imagine. We've already spent 12 or 13 lessons on this. But they're almost at the top. The pilgrims are almost at the top. The priests are at almost the top. And notice in Psalms 132, once again, I think the fifth or sixth time, we see a psalm of David. Psalms 132 is a Davidic psalm, and that's important to us. Now, to understand this psalm, you want to write some, maybe make some cross-references here. 
In Psalms 132, we see that this is a companion to what David said in 2 Samuel 6 and 7 and 1 Chronicles 13. 2 Samuel 6 and 7 and 1 Chronicles 13 deal with David bringing the ark of God back to Jerusalem. And that was a very monumental time, a very momentous time, a very historic moment because the ark had been away from the place, from the city of God, had never been in Jerusalem, in fact, and had been away from the presence of the people of God because formerly it was at Shiloh. And then it was, it was, uh, then the, the, then it was taken away. And then, then for, for, la- for uh, the 20 years leading up to that, it was over in the area of Kerjathrum. In fact, we have that reference here. Uh, notice here over in, uh, let me see here, in verse, um, Verse 6, he says, Lo, we heard of it at Ephratah. And Ephratah is speaking about Bethlehem. He's talking about Bethlehem, Ephratah, where they had heard, heard of it. He said, you know, we know about the ark of God. And I think David is even talking about to those days when he was a, a shepherd there in the hills of Bethlehem there and taking care of his father's sheep. He heard about the stories of the ark because when he was a young boy, the ark had been taken away and so forth there. And then he says here in verse 6, he said, we found it in the fields of the wood. There he's talking about where they went to Kerjathrim, which was known as the city, the, the, the forest city there that they went there to recapture and bring it back up to the bring it for, to, for the very first time as it's is its holding spot as a station there at the city of jerusalem so it's a davidic psalm this is a very monumental psalm it was probably written and sung by david a- after they brought it back and had that great celebration time that we read about in second second samuel chapter seven now you'll notice here as i said in verses one to ten we have in verses one to ten we have david's vow to god because david had had a priority you want to write down the the thought here right over at the capture over Psalm 132, priority, because this is David's priority. Now listen, everything in life is a priority. What is important to you is a priority. Amen? Now if you're here tonight in church and you are, that was a priority. What's important to you is a priority. You make a priority, whatever your priorities are, that's what's important to you. And we find in verses 1 to 10, a very important priority to David That trickles down to the people of God. What was David's priority here is your priority, my priority. And we get to verses 11 and 18. We see God responding back. In fact, verses 11 and 18, God is pleased with David's priority. God is pleased when you and I have the right priorities. Amen? God is pleased when we make the right decisions and right choices. Listen, we live our life to please a lot of people, a lot of things. But the most important person you must please in your life is, is God. If you're not pleasing God, that's, that's not a good thing. Amen. And we want to please God. And I believe you're here tonight because you want to please God. But I believe tonight we need to go step beyond that. We're going up the hill. I'm going higher. Amen. And as we're going higher, as we're making, we're with the psalmist and making the psalm of ascent. We're we're desiring tonight to be in accord with the priority of God. Notice some things God that David uses as language and words here. If you'll notice, you want to maybe circle these words as I use it. He talks about a place for the Lord. He talked about the habitation. He talked about his tabernacles. He talked about his footstool. He talked about the ark of thy strength. He refers to Jerusalem being Zion. He talks about thy rest. And God says, my rest. Here will I dwell. Tonight, I want us to see what is this priority. Notice, number one, we see a godly priority. We see a godly priority from David. Notice David starts out in verse one. Would you notice this? He's praying to God. He's talking, having fellowship time with God. He said, Lord... 
comma. Remember David, comma. And why did he say that? Because David is thinking about the great ambition of his life. I was reading through the first Chronicles this past week again. And I started getting a story like I did in the early days of my Christian life. In the early days when I started pastoring. He said, Lord, I want to build a house for God. You're called to the ministry. You want to build something for God. You want to do something for God. Brother Garrett, you're going to Nigeria. You want to do something for God. You want to do something for God here in the Bay Area. And David was still a man in his prime. Man with great energy, great enthusiasm, great vision, great fire. He wanted to do something for God. He wanted to do something that would outlast him. He wanted something that would touch lifetimes forever and a future legacy. So he says, Lord, I want you to remember me. He said, I want you to remember what we did and the men I sent down to Kerjathurim, the men to recover the ark and bring the ark out of the house of Obadidim back here to the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, the city of peace. And my Lord, I want you to remember that this is the place where we want your glory to dwell. And he says, I don't want your glory way, for, way down yonder there. I don't want it down the forest city where nobody can see it and nobody can find I want your glory here with your people. And so he says, Lord, remember David. And he said, notice this phrase, notice, and all his afflictions. Now, we read the word affliction. First thing we think about is all of David's troubles. We think about his his, uh, travels and his journeys, his running from King Saul and going through all those different areas of the wilderness. And we think about him being in the cave of Adullam. We think about that. We think about David's affliction. We think about the wars and the battles he had. We think about his afflictions. We think about the heartache he felt as people were, the people that were close to him were killed. And we think of his afflictions. We think about the time when he ran away from Absalom. But you have to remember when, when this was written, Psalms 132 is written and was written according with Second, Second Samuel, uh, uh, 6 and 7. You have to remember the incident with Absalom had not happened. He didn't experience that heartache, that affliction with Absalom turning on him and the, the kingdom being upheaval. The affliction he has here, the burden here, to understand that we need to go over to 1 Chronicles 22.14. Is that in your notes? 1 Chronicles 22. Why don't you turn there if it's not in your notes? In 1 Chronicles 22.14, he uses a word to help us understand this word affliction. And David here in 1 Chronicles 22, he's talking to his men and Solomon in, in his presence. And he says, now behold in my trouble, I have prepared for the house of the Lord. Notice that word trouble. The word trouble has the same idea as the word affliction. I have prepared in my trouble. Now he was not saying the serving God was troublesome. He wasn't saying serving God was a problem. It's a joy to serve Jesus. Amen. It should never, you should never feel that it's hardship to serve God. You should never feel it's too much. You should never feel like you've been asked to do too much. It's a joy to serve Jesus Christ. Okay. And so what David's talking about though here, and you want to write this in your notes, he's referring to a burden on his heart. Lord, Remember David and his burden. Lord, remember David, my great desire. You said, why did he say desire? You said, why did he say his ambition? Because it was killing him. He was dying inside. The ark of God was not where it needed to be among the people of God. 
And David made it his goal as king that we're going to get the ark of God into Jerusalem. And so notice as we work our way here, notice David, as we go to verses 2 through 10, David has a burden for bringing the ark of God to Jerusalem. It's down in Kerjathjerim. It's been down there in the wooded city there. It's out of place, out of sight, out of mind. Right? Out of sight. Say that with me. Out of sight, out of mind. You don't see the ark of God. You're not thinking about God. God gave them a physical manifestation through the ark. The ark is always a picture. I'm going to be repeating this a lot tonight. The ark is always a picture of the presence of God. Okay? They had to have that because they had to associate something. Because you have to remember, the Jews were taken out of Egypt. In Egypt, they had all these idols that they worshipped. People identify with things they have to see. But God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And, and so we have to remind ourselves that we didn't need that, but God had to give them something there during that dispensation time that gave them, if you would, a physical manifestation that helped them to understand the, per- the presence of God. Now, I want you to see some things. David made this statement in 1 Chronicles 13.3. He said, let us bring the ark of our God to us, for we inquired not of it in the days of Saul. David's kingdom was at a place of rest. David was a wise man, but he was very careful to look to the men that he had among him for counsel and, and, to, and to make sure these men were in affirmation with what God had put on his heart. It didn't mean that if they were against it, that he was not going to do it, but he wanted to make sure the timing was right for these things. And so he, uh, he said, let us bring again the ark of the Lord of our God to us, for we inquired not of it during the days of Saul. He says, look, at when Saul was king and Saul was king for 40 years, the ark of God wasn't here. He said, we didn't inquire of it. And I think, Dad, sadly, I almost imagine David with tears coming down his face thinking, you know, there, Saul messed up during his life because he didn't inquire of the Lord. And he says, it could be traced to the fact that the ark of God was not here, the, that manifestation of God's presence. And, and, I, and I could paraphrase as David was saying, it's been a long, long time. Uh, and we need to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. We got, we got to get God's presence here, if you would. And so David now has conquered Jerusalem. Was only, it was possessed by the Jebusites, if you remember that. And Joab stepped up and he said, you know, he said, hey, whoever will take the sea will be my captain. And Joab stepped up and he took, he took it and they renamed it Jerusalem. And it was first called the city of David there. And there David is, he's sitting on his throne in a place of rest. There's no wars. No conflicts. He wasn't thinking about expanding his kingdom. He wasn't thinking about expanding, increasing his wealth. He wasn't thinking about what could benefit David. He wasn't thinking, what can the kingdom give to me? He was thinking about the people that God had entrusted him with. He was thinking about the fact, we need God here. We need the presence of God here in our midst. This is not the city of God if God is not here. And he remembered back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when they, they treated the ark of God like, like, a, like a rabbit's foot, like a trinket. And they said, it will help us. Well, it would not help them because they were not living for God. They were misusing, mis- misabusing, and misusing the ark of God. It was taken from them. And you know, we get that word Ichabod at that time there. And so David's concerned about that. He wants to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. Now, for many of you new to the faith, or maybe you're new to the church, we need to ask this question. What is the ark? What is the ark? We're not talking about Noah's ark, okay? We're talking about the ark, the ark of the covenant. If you watch, if, you, if you're familiar with Indiana Jones, they were going after that, that ark of the covenant. What was that? The ark was a symbol of the presence of God. Now, the ark was an important piece of furniture in the tabernacle. 
Notice in verse 7, God refers to, David refers to it as the, as, as the footstool of God. The ark, if you would, was a, was a beautiful piece of furniture that's described to us in the book of Exodus. Whereby there would be certain contents, which I'll describe in a moment. But the ark of God represented the presence of God. And that beautiful tabernacle that was constructed, that tent, there would be the holy place and there would be the holy of holies. Only the high priest could enter to the holy of holies. And that holy of holies was that ark of the covenant or that ark of God. And in the ark it had, it had some important contents. You want to write this down. The first thing you would find there in the ark, the ark were the tables of stone. The tables of stone were where the Ten Commandments that were written out by the finger of God that were given to Moses that was passed down from generation to generation. God told Moses that the tables of stone were to be put inside of that ark. Now, the tables of stone were were a representation of the laws of God. The laws of God point men to God. It reminds men of the righteousness of God. It shows it to the fact that we fall short of the glory of God. The, the law points at you and I and call, accuses us of being sinners. It shows us how far we are from, from Jesus Christ. But it's also a picture of the Word of God. And you have to remember, everything about the ark is symbolic about our Lord Jesus Christ. And it pictures for us Jesus Christ as the living Word. And so we see the two tables of stone. There's a second thing we see in the ark. We see the golden pot filled with manna. And you remember the story there in Exodus chapter 15 that Israel, as they went out, God fed them with man every day. The Bible calls it angel's food. It was bread from heaven. It was a small, small little round thing. It, it, there were little wafers that tasted like honey to them. And they were to gather it every morning. They would go from, from Sunday until, until Friday. They would gather it. Saturday was the Sabbath day. They were not to gather on the Sabbath day. The day before that, which would be Friday, our day, they would gather twice as much so they would have enough for that day. And they were to consume it. And if they didn't consume it all that day, it would, it would rot. They were to take advantage of the day. They were not to have any leftovers the next day. They were to consume it there. And so that manna was very precious to them because it sustained them for 40 years. God took very care, very good care of them. But that manna is a representation. If you read over in John chapter, I think John chapter 6 there, it talks about Jesus Christ being the living bread. He's the bread of life. And so it was a representation of Jesus Christ being the bread of life. And so we look at this, we look at this ark of God and the presence of God being all over. We see the, the commandments of God, the, the law there being a picture of the living word and we see the manna being a picture of Jesus Christ being the bread of life but then we see something else that's very unusual we see this we see that there's a rod that was there this it's a broken off branch and this rod that was there was a you know rod when it's broken off a tree it's lifeless it cannot grow anything it's dead and it was called Aaron's rod that budded because you go over, I think it's in, in Numbers chapter 16, Numbers chapter 17, I believe it is, that they had to do an authentication as to who the true men of God were between Aaron and, and those who led a revolt against, uh, you know, the sons of Korah and people like that, who led a revolt against Aaron and Moses. And so they said, let's bring every man his rod and that rod that buds, that will give authentication as to the true man of God is. And so they, they put the rods out and Aaron's rod was a very interesting rod. It was a rod that started budding. It started giving life there and flowers started to bloom off that. And so just as it was at that time when it gave authentication and validation of Aaron being the true the true high priest, that rod was to be placed inside that ark as well there too. Now the that rod that budded is a is a beautiful picture and symbol of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came back from the dead. It's a beautiful thing. But now we notice here, we go to this we see something happening here. We, we see this ark of God and this ark of God is a picture of Jesus Christ and his resurrection and a picture of Jesus Christ as the, as the living word, a picture 
nature of Jesus Christ as the bread of life. But we, we're not done yet. Because overshadowing that, that, that ark, overshadowing it was what was called a golden mercy seat. This mercy seat, this covering, if you would, that was made out of pure gold. And the high priest, as he went in there once a year, he would go in with a basin of blood from a, from a freshly killed firstborn for, for a lamb of the first year. And we'd go in there with this, this, this basin and he would have hyssop in his hand. And he would go there once a year and he'd sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. And the sprinkling of the blood represented God's covering of sin on his, on his people. If you can see this here, it represents to us that whole picture that we're sinners and, uh, and we cannot save ourselves and we need Jesus Christ as our Savior. And the sprinkling of the blood represented the shedding of the blood of an innocent victim. That innocent victim was Jesus Christ. And the shedding of the blood over that mercy seat, it's a picture of how God extends mercy to every sinner to be saved. By the way, say amen to that. Amen. And just thankful to God that got that mercy seat there, that God extends it to us. And so as God does all that, we see in all of this a picture of salvation, but it's a beautiful picture of, of our Lord Jesus Christ here. And when the priests did those kind of things, we remember as we read through the we read through the Pentateuch, we read there about the Shekinah glory, the glory of God coming down upon that, and the very presence of God. And, and there was an awe, and there was a reverence, and there was a fear that the people of God had about the presence of God being there. So the ark represented the presence of God. And so David's goal was to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. He wanted the he wanted the tabernacle sacrifices and the ceremonies and the rituals and the practices of the Day of Atonement and the practice of the Passover were done there, not in Kirjathra. They wanted it there where the Ark of God was. They wanted it where it is proper place where the people of God was at. And so the Ark was important to them. It, point, it, was, the, it was the starting point in establishing fellowship for every sinner, but it was also the station point where fellowship was recurring and continuous. Would you notice this here? The reason he wanted the Ark of God. It's a starting point for fellowship of every sinner. Listen, you cannot have fellowship with God until you first get saved. You've got to get that fellowship right with God. You've got to get it restored. And that fellowship with God does not start until you get saved. And so the ark of God represented the starting point. But after you get saved, as the priest would go in there year after year, it was the station point. It was a place where fellowship would be recurring over and over again. So now you notice this here. David David has this desire in verse 1 and 2. He says, I want to bring the ark of God. I want to bring it back. I want to get the presence of God here. My big burden here is to get the ark of God back into the presence here of God. And so notice this. This is his desire. Notice in verses 2 to 10, we see David making this vow. Would you notice this with me? In verses 2 to 10, David's not going to rest, and David's not going to sleep, and David's not going to have a holiday, and David's not going to take a vacation, and David's not going to take a siesta, and David's not going to go off somewhere. David's great desire in his heart was to get the ark of God back to Jerusalem. He wanted to get the presence of God where the people could enjoy the presence of God, where everything revolving around the city, and everything revolving around his family, and everything revolving around David's life would center on the on the person of God. Notice he said in verse 3, he's making this vow to God. I mean, he's praying this. He's saying, God, I'm going to die. I'm not going to die if I don't get this done. He says, surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. No, he's saying, listen, I know I've got to go home and I know I've got to go to bed and I know I've got to go to sleep. But he said, Lord, I'm so burdened about this. This is afflicting me right now. I'm so burdened about this. I've got to get the presence of God. I've got to get it back here into Jerusalem. He said, Lord, I'm not going to my home. I'm not going to my tent. I'm not going to my bed. He said in verse four, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. He says, I'm not 
going to do all that in verse, in verse 5 until I find out a place for the Lord, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. And you look at verse 5, what a powerful statement he's talking about here. He says, listen, I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to slumber. I'm not going to vacation. I'm not going to siesta. I'm not going to go on a holiday. He said, until I find a habitation, I want to find that faith, find that place of rest where God's presence can be there, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. You have to understand that was important because God was not dead and God is not dead even right now. He said, I'm going to bring it back to the mighty God of Jacob. He wasn't talking about the God of Abraham and taught the God of Isaac. He was talking about the mighty God of Jacob because you know why? Jacob experienced the power of God in his life. Jacob got God's power in his life there at Peniel. And there at Peniel, when he got a hold of God, he says, God, he said, listen, God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Listen, we need a Christianity where you and I are so burdened about God. And we're so burdened about his presence. We're so burdened about his fellowship. We'll say, God, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me there. So David, David remembered that. He says, man, I remember about happened there, Peniel. I remember when God came down and God touched his hip there. And listen, he was crippled and he had to hobble on that, on that thigh. He had to hobble on one leg there. But man, he was called the mighty God. He said the mighty God of Jacob. And God represented himself to Jacob many times. And so notice verse 6. In this vow, he talks about, he says, though we heard of it at Ephrata. He said, I remember hearing about the ark when I was a boy. I remember hearing it there in Ephrata as I made my way back home to see my daddy and see my brothers there. I remember there Bethlehem, Ephrata. We've heard about it. I heard the stories of it. But you know, he was at the place. I'm tired of hearing the stories. I want to bring it where it needs to be. I want it right here with me. I don't want it far away. I don't want it miles away in Kerjathrim. I want it here. And then he said, we went out. He said in verse 6, he said, now Lord, we went out and we found it in the fields of the wood. We made our search. We found it. Listen, we need to do a search for God. We need some, some of God's people to look for the Lord and find God. You need to get off somewhere. If you find that your soul is depleted, you're finding that you're, you're at a place you need a restoration of your soul. You're finding at a place where your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You're at a place where you have no power with God. You're at a place where you're not seeing God work in your life. You're at a place where you can't see God do some great things. You need to be like David. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to rest until I find a place for the habitation of my God. You need to be at that place like David where he said right here, he said, Lord, I, I need to go. He said, I'm going to keep looking until I find it. I'm going to find it. And listen, David went out. He sent his men out and they found it there. Kerjath, and they went to the house of Obedidim. And there they found the house. They found that ark of God. And then he said later on there, seven. So we, we're, we're going to bring it back. And he said in verse 7, we will go into his tabernacles. He's talking about, man, we're going to put a big tent up there. And we're going to go inside that tent. And we're going to go inside that tabernacle of God. And we will worship at the footstool of God. Because the ark of God was the place where God would, he, he symbolized it as the, the footstool. The place where God would put his feet. The place of satisfaction for God. And he said, he said, oh, in verse 8, he says, man, I can't wait. That that will be the place where we're going to go there. And we're going to worship God. We get to worship God corporately. I get to worship God personally. I get to worship God with my family, he says there. And then he says, he got into this moment. I, I think he got into the, just this, this moment there, if you went in verse 8. And he said, arise, O Lord. He said, God, I'm going to bring the ark back. We're going to get the ark of God here. And he said, Lord, my vow is, you come. I'll, get, I'll bring it back. But Lord, I want you to rise. I, Lord, I want your presence to be felt. I want your presence to be known. Arise, O Lord. Listen, and to thy rest. He says, that is the rest of God. That is the habitation of the Lord. He said in verse 7, he said, verse 8, and the ark of thy strength. He says, that is where the manifestation of God is the greatest. He said, arise, O Lord. And he said, look at verse 9. He said, let the priest be clothed with righteousness. He said, Lord, I can imagine the day where servants of God, true servants of God, are worshiping God in truth and worshiping God in righteousness and not worshiping God in pretense and not worshiping God for the applause of men and not worshiping God to be pleasing to men or get their eyes on the people's eyes. They just want to worship God in righteousness and truth. They want to worship God out of a pure heart. And listen, this morning, this evening, we can come to God and be pretentious and do all 
all the things we want, but there comes a time we've got to be right with God and say, Lord, I'm coming to worship you in righteousness and truth because that's the only way that we can worship God. He said, let thy priests be clothed in righteousness. Man, I don't want, I don't want somebody serving God coming up. Let me tell you something today. That's why I don't like the contemporary, I don't like this contemporary church movement. I'm not going to have this stuff. I'm not going to be. Now, you may do that someday when I'm dead and gone and Jesus doesn't come. But I'm going to tell you what. You're not going to see this preacher up here in flip-flops and shorts and leading a service here. Amen. You say, well, man, you need to get with the time. You need to get with the Bible. He said, let thy priest be clothed. And by the way, clothing is talking about fully attired. You say, well, pastor, that means if somebody came to church and flip-flops in his church, you're not going to let them. Of course they can come to church here. But you're not going to have a preacher doing that here. No way. And let me put, let's put a plug in here. You're out soul winning. You're representing God and your local New Testament church. Don't dress like you just came out of the garbage pit. Amen. <laughs> Give your best. Visitors come to church and they, they say something like this. They say, man, I am I supposed to wear a, a tie shirt? And I say, listen, you know what? I'm here to serve you. Now, regardless of how you dress, it's important I dress right for you because I'm here to serve you. I want to look my best for you. I didn't dress up. I, I dressed up for you. I dressed up for Jesus and for you. That's why I want to look my best on Sundays. I give my best to God on that. I don't, I'm not going to come sloppy like that because that's the house of God. Now, you have a different persuasion. That's your business on that. But I'm just saying here, here's what David said. He had imagination of the ark of God there, the worship of God. And here's what he said. Let thy priest be clothed with righteousness. I'm going to tell you something tonight. You listen to me this evening. This casual contemporary idea going on in churches. Dress like you want and come when you weigh. And flaunt your chains and all that kind of stuff there. I'm going to tell you what. He said, let thy priest be clothed with righteousness. And by the way, forget your clothing. Let your character be right. Amen. We need men in the pulpit whose character is right. We need men in the pulpit who are walking with God and have a good spirit about the things of God. They're not perfect. By the way, none of God's servants are perfect men. But all of God's servants need to be humble men. Thy priest be clothed with righteousness. And then notice this. He wasn't. And by the way, I like this part in verse 9. The worship of God is not about the preacher. In fact, if anything, you shouldn't be looking at the preacher. You should be looking at the cross. The preaching of the word, which is the centrality of worship in a biblical church. It's the centrality of worship. Because we're preaching the word of God to elevate Jesus Christ. We don't have preaching to get all hyper and all excited. We're, we're getting excited about Jesus Christ. We're preaching the pure word of God so that as the word of God is, 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 is being preached, we're elevating Jesus Christ. We're elevating the presence of God. We're elevating who God is. And as we do so, you ought to be able to say of church, what a great God I have. Would you notice, so the essence was not about the priests. Would you notice verse 9? And let thy saints shout for joy. And that's glory. Amen. Amen. He's saying, listen, you come in where the presence of God is. And God, the footstool of God, we're going to worship at his footstool. And God is going to rise into his rest. 
and the ark of his strength. He said, man, when we get that and the priests are doing the work of God and they're lighting the candles and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're doing the washings and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're making the sacrifices and all those things. He said, well, all that's going on and we're watching this. He said, man, the people of God, and he calls them the saints of God. He's distinguishing. He's being saved and born again. He says there, let the saints shout for joy. Listen, you ought to be excited about serving Jesus. Amen. You ought to be excited about worshiping God. You ought to be excited about singing the songs of praise. You'd say, listen, he said, let the saints shout for joy. He says, God, you haven't been here, but we're going to get you here. And when you get you here, we're going to have some men that are going to serve you. And we're going to have some men doing the work of God rightly. And as we get to doing the work of God rightly, I want all of God's people throughout all of Jerusalem to be around that. And I want them to shout for joy. I want them to say, wow, God is here. Wow, God is on. God is doing something great for us. He wants God's people to shout for joy. He didn't talk about getting some Pentecost ecliptic fit. He was talking about people getting excited and thrilled and, ha- and just having a, a holy desire in their heart that God is at work there. And listen, it ought to excite you when you come to church, the fire is going to come down. It ought to excite you when you come to church, that preaching is going to start. It ought, when you come to church, it ought to excite you that God is going to do something in our hearts and God's going to save some souls and God's going to do something great in the lives of God's people there. He made a vow. He made a vow. And you know what? As we look at verses 1 to 10, he didn't talk about it here. But David brought back the ark of God. Now you go back tonight when you have time. And read 2 Samuel 6 and 7 and 1 Chronicles 13. Man, it changed my life when I read that this week. I said, man. His greatest ambition was getting the ark of God into the city. His greatest desire is that the priests be clothed with righteousness. The people would shout aloud for joy. He brought it back. And when he brought it back, there was a revival of the worship of God. So many people were writing books on it. A good friend of mine just wrote a, a book, and he's a preacher. He's a good preacher, a good man of God. And it's a good book, and I probably will buy it and give it to all of our leaders. But corporate worship will never hit that next crescendo if we haven't learned personal worship of God. When's the last time? Hey, look up here. Don't don't look in your Bible. When's the last time you read your Bible, you prayed a little bit, prayed some more, read your Bible? Listen to me tonight. When's the last time you did that and you wept for joy because you thought how pitiful you are, how great God is? When's the last time? When's the first time? You shout for joy. To you read your Bible with tears in your eyes. I'm just asking you. They had a revival of worship. We make what is important to us our priority. We make what is important to us our priority. We have family priorities. 
By the way, when I talk about these priorities, I'm not saying they're bad, okay? Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. We have work, career priorities. We have travel priorities. We have financial priorities. We definitely have marriage priorities if you're married. But can I ask you this question? What about our God priority? What about our God priority? How important is God in your life? Does our idea of a God priority match up with God's word or what a God priority should be? Someone wisely noted there are three kinds of people in this world. Non-Christians, God is not in their lives. Carnal Christians, Christ is in their lives, but he's on the fringes. He's on the outskirts. And those trying to be spiritual Christians, who realize that Christ is God, and as God, he demands and deserves To be in the center of our life. Non-Christians. Carnal Christians. Spiritual Christians. Is God your priority? We see a godly priority. Number two. Would you notice this tonight? Would you notice a governing principle? Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. And for that matter, we had a united kingdom was all of Israel. David has brought the ark of God to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if this is in your notes, but even if it is, you probably should write this out because I want you to get this embedded in your thoughts. Let's see the principle. King David was determined... In as literal a way as possible. To put God. Dead center. In his world. Did you understand what I just said? King David. Made his priority. He was determined. As literally as possible. To make sure God. Was dead center. In his world. He wanted his home life. His political capital. To be the center of his spiritual life. He made a vow that God was not going to be on the fringes anymore. Because the presence of God was many miles away in the forest city of Kerjathjerim. He made a determination. Lord, you've been on the fringes too long. We've had you outside the borders too long. God, I, I make a determination. I make a public proclamation to all the people of God. Here in Jerusalem. Here. You're the priority. You're the center of worship. You're the center of our lives. And so David made it publicly known as he makes this vow that God was not going to be in the outskirts anymore. And notice in verse 10, he makes this vow and he closes this vow by making the statement. Would you notice this? For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. They say two things from that. Number one, God, don't turn your face from me, 
Let your face shine on me. Amen. But secondly, he's saying, turn not my face from fulfilling what I need to do. Lord, I'm dead set. My face is set. We've got to get you back here. And so he's saying here, Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm going to make the, I'm going to make a party. I'm going to lead the kingdom. I'm going to lead your people. I'm going to lead these soldiers. I'm going to lead these priests. I'm going to lead all these people here, these public servants, to understand that the city of Jerusalem, this ark is going to come here. And we're going to make a big deal out of it. We're going to establish a tabernacle. And we're going to put that ark there. And it's going to be the Holy of Holies. And we're going to have this, we're going to have these ceremonies that you gave to Moses. And we're going to have this thing going here. And he said, the governing principle for me and my house and my kingdom and our people is the priority of the worship of God, the priority of the presence of God in our lives. He's saying, they saying that is going to be what's going to drive us. That is what it's all about. That is what's the most important thing. Listen this morning, this evening. The most important thing today is not that you taught a lesson. The most important thing today is that you bring people to Jesus. Did you get them closer to God? The most important thing today is not how many people you shook hands with. The most important thing is that they sense that Jesus Christ's presence was in your life. I'm saying today, as David was doing this, he said, man, I fought the battles and I've shed the blood and I've done all these things and I've written the Psalms and I've done these things. But the most important thing I've got to do in my life before I die is I've got to get the ark of God and the presence of God back in the place where it's the dead center of the worship and the attention of everybody in this kingdom here. So here's what he's saying to us tonight. Here's the governing principle for you and me. Jesus should be the priority of your life. I said Jesus should be the priority of your life. Jesus should be the priority of your worship. Jesus should be the priority of career and financial planning. He said, Pastor, how do you juggle that? (laughs) Hardest working people of most professions is probably teachers. My heart aches for teachers, how late they stay up at night, especially when they have to grade papers and things and dealing with the students. I mean, there's just a I think there's a calling to be a teacher because I I just I look at I I look at teachers. I mean, I'm talking about a dedicated true teacher. But can I tell you something tonight? You could be so you could be so overwhelmed with teaching. You're more overwhelmed with teaching than you are the teacher that can happen to us. Jesus should be the priority for today and hereafter. Listen to some verses tonight. In First Chronicles 22, the first half of verse 19, David said, Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. Psalms 27, 8, as David was coming out of a trial, he said, When thou said, Seek ye my face, my heart sent unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. Elijah was down at Zarephath. He was with the widow there. She said, you know what? I'm going to take a handful of meal. This cruise of oil. I'm going to make a cake. I'm not going to make it for you, Elijah. I know God, God sent you here for me to take care of you. But she says, all I got left. This is all I got, man. She says, you're supposed to be a man of God. And by the way, she wasn't convinced he was a man of God at that moment of time. All I've got is a handful of meal. You imagine a poor little widow woman. I mean, her hand probably was very small, probably half the size of my hand. I just got a little handful of meal, a little cruise of oil. I'm going to go in. I'm going to bake a little cake. 
Bobby, the size like this. I'm going to break it in half and share it with my son, and then we're going to die. And Elijah told that woman, go and do as thou said. But make me a cake first, and afterwards make for thy son and for thyself. And God tells us the same thing. We, he realizes we're down to the bottom of the barrel. He realizes we're at our wit's end. He realizes the resources are depleted. He realizes that the brook has shrunk. He realizes we're down to that handful of meal. He realizes we're trying to juggle trusting God and doing the right thing. Listen, it's easy to trust God when everything's going good, but the real trust in God happens when things are not going good. He said afterwards, he said, make for me, make a cake first for me and for then for yourself. And God tells us the same thing. Take care of what I'm, so, I gave you to do and I'll take care of you. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek you the Lord while he may be found. Call you upon him while he's near. David felt a sense time is running out. We don't have a lot of time. I've got to, I've got to find the Lord. Matthew 6, 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Colossians 3, 1, but ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the throne of God. Adolf Menzel was a famous artist. From 1859 to 1861, he worked on the canvas of a painting that was to portray an address that Frederick the Great made to all of his generals before they, bought, they fought at the Battle of Luthen. In December of 1757 was this momentous meeting Frederick the Great had with his generals. I mean, you talk about a war council. You talk about an assembly of important people, great decision makers. And Adolf Menzel wanted to capture this on canvas so people could see it. Amazingly, he worked two years on this. He never finished it. I said he never finished it. He drew the portrait with all the generals and their faces and their military uniforms and the prestigious people. And he had all these important people that were there in that picture. But probably missing was Frederick the Great himself. The picture never got it completed. Frederick the Great was left out. He never got painted into there. We see the careers. We see the success. We see the geniuses, we see the wisdom, we see the intellectuals, we see the philosophers, we see the religious men, we see the strategists, we see the military heroes. But the most important person in that picture is missing. And that's how our life is. That's how our life is. We see the career, we see our finances, we see our world. We see the entertainment, we see the dazzles, we see the celebrities, we see the moments, we see the Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame, we see the Sergey Bins of Google fame, we see the Bill Gates of Microsoft fame, we see all these prominent names, all these people, 
We see ourselves. We see our dollar signs. We see our net worth. We see all these things. We see all the accolades from people. But probably missing in our life. Where is Jesus Christ? Where's Jesus Christ? Where's Jesus Christ? Where's the presence of God? I go home a day. I start my day, end my day, and I've done my things. I carry my briefcase. I carry my bag. I carry my backpack. I've done all these things. I've accomplished these things. But where is God? Where is the presence of God? And so we look at verses 1 to 10. We see a governing principle. David's heart was set. The dead center in Jerusalem. The ark of God would come. And it did. As we close tonight, I'm going somewhere. We're almost done. We're going to go down to verses 11 to 18. I want you to see the remainder of this tonight. I'm coming down for a minute. We see the godly priority. We see the governing principles. Verses 11 to 18. We see the gracious promises. We see the gracious promises. I want you to notice in verses 11 to 18, the Lord has heard David's prayer. The last thing David asks, for thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Lord, please let me in my lifetime get this done. Please, Lord, I, David, this time, I don't know, maybe he was about 40 years old, 45 years old at that time. Please, Lord, help me get this done. And the Lord, the Lord responds to him. And I'm just going to walk you through this tonight. I'm not, I don't, I didn't, you just follow me tonight. Here's how God responds. He says, number one, verse 11, he says, I'm going to make a promise to you, David. I'm going to make some vows to you. He said, uh, the Lord has sworn in truth unto David. By the way, aren't you glad God's word is truth? Amen. Aren't you glad he never lies? Amen. He never lies. He says, The Lord has sworn in truth. And he says to you. And I'm not going to turn for you. He says, now David, what I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to backpedal on you. I'm not going to tell you something and I'm going to back out on this. This is going to happen, David. This is going to happen. Okay? That's the promises of God. It's going to happen. Amen? And he said, um, here's what I'm going to do. David, he says, now, here's what's going to happen. He said, uh, I'm going to bless your throne. But I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to do more than bless you in your lifetime. And parents, look up here for a minute. He said, I'm going to do more than take care of you. I'm looking beyond you. I'm looking at future generations. I'm not living my life, whatever years I have left, I'm not living my life for me. I'm living my life for you guys. I'm living my life for my children and my grandchildren. Hopefully, if I live long enough, great-grandchildren. I'm living my life for that next generation, what God can do. And you notice here, he said, now, David... You haven't thought this far, but I've already thought about it for you. Aren't you glad God already thought things out for you and me, man? He's already thought this out. And he said, look, David, here's what I'm going to do. He said, um, of the fruit of thy body, I will set upon thy throne. If thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also sit upon the throne forevermore. Now, you know what he just did to David? He said, David, I'm, I'm promising you right now something you didn't ask for, but I'm promising to bless multi-generations of your family. Wow. Now, how many, how many parents today, you want the best for your parents, your kids, amen? How many parents say you want the best for your kids? Don't you, don't you want the best for your kids? I mean, you want God's best for your children, amen? Okay. 
I mean, the Apostle John wrote in 3 John, I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in truth. And, and David didn't have to, and by the way, you correlate this with Psalms 112. God promises this in Psalms 112. He said, David, I'm going I'm to establish your throne, but here, here's the cool part, David. He said, you're going to, as long as your, your, your children keep my covenants, as long as they keep what they're supposed to do, they keep the word of God that I'm going to teach them. And by the way, I'm, I'm thankful God says, you know what, you know what, I'm, I, I know you're going to be doing that, but I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, my spirit's going to work in their hearts where I'm going to teach them for you, okay? Parents, we need, there's a point of time we've, we've got to realize, you know, as much as we do the teaching and all these things with our kids' lives, but there's just something we have to understand. There comes a time we just got to let God teach, Amen. We just got to let God do his work and, and trust the sovereignty of God to take care of things there. But notice here, he says, if they will keep my covenant unto, unto my testimony, then I shall teach them their children. Shall say, he's telling David, David, you don't even know who your grandson is going to be, but I've already taken care of that. I, I'm, if they keep my covenant, he'll sit on the throne. He'll sit on the throne. Now, th- that doesn't mean you're going to sit on the throne, but what he's saying here, you have the blessing of God in your life. Now, this is God making a promise to David. You have to understand. He says, the Lord is sworn in truth. I will not turn from it. So notice we go down a little bit further and we get to verse 13 and watch how this unfolds. He says, now, David, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. Now, you saying here, David, okay, I've seen your heart. He says, I'm going to rest there. The house of God is going to be there. The blessing of heaven is going to be there. He says, you bring it back. You bring the ark back. That's my habitation. He says, you don't have to question or ask about it. It's going to be there. And then he goes on further. He says, not only is it going to be my habitation, but he says, he said in verse 14, this is my rest forever. That's important. He says, this means, he says, listen, there's no more wandering. This is where you're going to find me. This is where my presence will be. This is where I will be honored. This is where I'll be worshipped. This is my rest forever, he says. And then he says, here will I dwell, for I have desired it. Wow. David, you put the ark there. I'm going to be there. David, you get your party right. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be there, David, he said. You just, you just take care of what you're supposed to do. I'll take care of the rest. And then he said, then he noticed what he said in verse 15. This is so wonderful. He said, now, David, I will abundantly bless her provision. He said, David, you don't have to worry about whether I'm going to show up every service. I'm going to be there. <laughs> I will abundantly bless her provision. He says, you don't have to worry about running out of gold for the temple. And you don't have to worry about running out of gold for the tent. And you don't have to worry about running out of workers for the work of God. I will abundantly bless her provision. I think that word abundantly, that's why David said later on in First Chronicles 22, I will prepare out of the abundance of my heart for the house of God. But he gets better. He says, I will satisfy her poor with bread. He said, now, David, I'm not going to promise you that you're not going to be without famines during those days. But he says, I promise you this, you'll always will have enough to take care of you. You'll always have enough for the city. Isn't that what God said in Philippians 4.19? My God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know, we only need enough to get by to the next day. Amen? We just need. He said, our prayer should be, give us this day our daily bread. And it gets better than this. He says, he said, now, David, you asked me to clothe the priest. I'm going to do it. I'm going to clothe the priest with salvation. 
and her saints shall shout for joy. He says, they're going to be shouting and rejoicing. He says, it's going to be a great place. And, and he said there in verse 17, there will I make the horn of David to bud. Now, what does he mean by that? Wherever, you might want to write this down if you ever get confused by this, but the, the, the idea of the horn, uh, the horn of David, the horn, if you would, have the idea of strength and power. He says, David, there, right there, he says, now the strength, the source of your power and the source of your strength is not in your military and it's not in your workout at the gyms. He said, the source of your strength is God blessing. He says, there, he says, there, there, where? There where the ark of God is, will I make the horn of David the bud? Listen, you can get out, you can, you can get strong muscular wise, but I'm going to tell you today, you're not going to have spiritual strength by going to the gym. You're going to get spiritual strength by going to where God's at. You get spiritual strength and power where the Spirit of God comes out. And he says, there will I make the horn of David the bud. He said, I've ordained a lamp for my anointed. He said, I've decided, if you put me there, you make me first. I, I will, he says, listen, I will make you a beacon that will shine around the world. I will illuminate things around there because you've put me first. Hey, guys, do you get it tonight? God is saying is, when we put God first, he's saying, listen, I promise to do things beyond what you ever ask. I will do exceeding abundantly above all you ask or think. Because the Bible is God is going to fulfill what he said. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all these things shall be added unto you. So I want you to think of me tonight. God is doing all these things. And as you read through verses 11 to 18, God gives to David seven I wills. You look at it later on. He gives him seven I wills. That is God's affirmation. I'm going to get this done. I'm going to bless Jerusalem. I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to bless you personally. I'm going to take care of your needs. You're going to have times of famine, but your people will never run out of bread. That's why David said later on, I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen God's seed begging for bread. He said, I'm going to take care of you. Listen, tonight, some of you are on the fringes right now wondering how you can even get to Thanksgiving. But I'm going to tell you, if you just put God first and honor God, He is going to take care of you because he promises in his word he'll take care of you there some of you need to learn how to tithe and some of you need to learn how to tithe off your gross and trust god listen you take care of the tithe which belongs to god that is not the offering the tithe belongs to god you start tithing god will take care of all your needs you say well why does god require the tithe because god knows that as people we will mismanage our finances and he knows that we'll spend it on ourselves why why do you think this term we're called consumers He knows how we are. He knows our greatest sin. That's why the 10th commandment talks about covetousness. He knows our greatest problem. Your problem, my problem today, is that we all are guilty of the sin of covetousness. How many already made your Christmas list what you want for Christmas? That's covetousness. Amen. Now David said, God said, David, hey, look, look, um, he gave him seven I wills. He's saying, David, just, you can bank on this, verse 11, 18. The promises of God, they will never fail. I'm going to take care of you. A preacher, I've been reading a little bit his sermons a little bit. He's got just, uh, I've enjoyed a little bit his, some of the stuff he's been writing. It's a man by the name of Robert Morgan. And he tells a story about a lady who had a little gift box about this big. <clears throat> And uh, she wrote out all the promises of God that she could find in the Bible. Not all of them, but she wrote a bunch of promises out. And the box was about this big, about that high. And she had them stacks of cards. And Brother Anthony, when she had a problem, she would go through those stack of cards and try to find a promise of God that she'd apply that situation there. And some of you probably like that. I, I remember when I first became a Christian, I didn't understand the Bible and all this stuff. And I just, you know, I did something like that there. One day she opened the box. You know how it is with some of us. We just fumble fingers, right? And she took the contents out and 
She dropped all the, the cards everywhere. And she was very frantic because on that day she was really stressed out. She really was looking for a promise from God. And she didn't even open her Bible. She just took all these promises and written down and she dropped it. And they're all over the place. And she got real frantic. She started going like this and thinking, what am I going to do? Which one do I pick up? And then it dawned on her at that moment. The Holy Spirit spoke to her. He says, what are you stressing out about? He says, you're surrounded by all the promises of God. <laughs> That's how we are. We get stressed out and we're surrounded by all the promises of God. Vance Havner said this. How many of you read Vance Havner? He's a blessing, amen, you know. Vance Havner wrote down, he said, there are 8,810 promises in the Bible. The Old Testament, there's 7,706. New Testament, 1,194. Now, Vance Havner knew his Bible. He was a walking Bible. I believe he counted these up, and I think his numbers are accurate and true. The book of Deuteronomy itself, and excuse me, Deuteronomy 28 itself has 133 promises of God. And Vance Havner made the statement, listen to this, listen to this tonight. He's preaching away, telling this congregation as an evangelist, there are 8,800 promises of the Word of God. And he says, you know what our problem is? We're sitting on the premises when we should be standing on the promises. Now, if you go away tonight... Your soul is still hungry. Or you didn't get anything out of it. I I really can't help that. I apologize. Maybe I just didn't do an effective job of preaching. But I want to tell you something tonight. If you're just sitting on the premises, it's time to stand on the promises. Amen? William Carey said this. The future is as bright as the promises of God. David Livingston, his favorite verse of the Bible, if you read David Livingston's biography, was Matthew 28, 20. Where Jesus Christ said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. I've been around preachers meeting. Brother Garrett, I've been around preachers meeting. Where they ask that question, where exactly is the end of the world? I think where you're going is the end of the world. They, bet, they, they just all say that, okay? Uh, when I met Paul Brickman down there in New Zealand, I thought, man, that is the end of the world, okay? I'm still waiting to find out if we got any mysteries. They're going to go to Antarctica one of these days before Jesus comes. That is the end of the world for me, okay? Wherever that may be, the innermost part of the earth, that's the end of the world. But you know what he said here? He said, uh, I'm going to hang on that verse because when he went to Africa, I mean, he went to uncharted territory. He, he, I mean, he got malaria and everything you could think of there. He went to uncharted territory and he said, you know what? I bank on, I bank for all my ministry in Matthew 28, 20. And this is what he said about the promises of God. He said, I can bank on the promises of God because they are the word of a gentleman of the strictest and most sacred honor. That's what he said. Hudson Taylor one time had used up all his resources, depleted all the resources he had. All he had was 25 cents. And this is, in the, this is one of the uh, 1800s. All he had was 25 cents. They said, Mr. Taylor, what are you going to do? How are you going to pay for all these things? You have all these schools and these buildings you're trying to put up and you're trying to train these Chinese preachers. What are you going to do? And Mr. Taylor stood up there with a smile on his face. He said, I have 25 cents and all the promises of God. The Lord has sworn in truth. He will not turn from it. Someone asked George Mueller, how did you have enough faith to trust God for the great work he gave you? You ever get to Bristol, England? If you ever get to that coastline of Bristol, England, you need to go visit where George Mueller had those orphanages and his church there. And he said this, my faith is the same faith which is found in every believer. It has been increased little by little 
for the last 26 years. Many times when I could have gone insane from worry, I was at peace because my soul believed the truth of God's promises. How many of you have read George Mueller's biography? How many of you have read that? Okay, a lot of you guys need to get that book. You need to re- and if you've read it, you need to read it again. In fact, you ought to get his prayer journal. It'll change your life. It'll increase your praying. You talk about a man of faith. There, there's nobody who's had faith like George Mueller did. And he said this. God's word, together with the whole character of God, as he's revealed himself, settles all questions. His unchangeable love and his infinite wisdom calm me. I knew God is able and willing to deliver me. Hey, how many of you know the name Corey Ten Boom? I know the name Corey Ten Boom. Raise your hand if you know the name Corey Ten Boom. Have you read her book, The Hiding Place? Corey Ten Boom during World War II, Nazi persecution of the Jews, did her best to hide Jews who came to her for refuge. If you think any missionary work right now is risky, what she did was ultra risky. And there were days when it got very, very hairy and very just uncertain for the Ten Boom family. When they would take a Jewish refugee in, they knew the risk that was going on. But then they started to realize as the Nazis came in and started to confiscate and go through their things, they started just going through stuff. They said, you know, we're going to lose our Bibles one of these days. They're going to take our Bibles, the Word of God. What are we going to do about this? So they made a decision. They all went to the Bible individually. And they literally cut out or tore out promises of God. Ephesians 1. You know, places like that. They took off their shoe and put it inside their shoes. And they'd meet with these Jewish people there who were not believers. They weren't saved. They cared for them. They loved them. And something would go like this. Corey Denboon's father would say, Corey, what do you have in your shoe? And then she'd say, Daddy, what do you got in your shoe? And then he would look at his, his wife and said, Mom, what do you got in your shoe? They were literally standing on the promises of God. <laughs> they were literally standing on the promises of God. The Lord said, he's sworn in truth. He would not turn from it. We put God dead center. We're surrounded by the promises of God. They're unchangeable. They're unfathomable. It's time to bring the presence of God dead center to our life. It's time to make the priority of our life the presence of God. As we go into Thanksgiving, would you make the presence of God real to you? I mean, we have to ask this hard question tonight. It's not to shame anybody or embarrass anybody. But is God dead center in what we do? And as a church, would you help me? Making sure our services, our Bible reading, our Bible preaching, our soul winning, our service for God represents that God is dead center in what we do. I'm not interested in who, what, what everybody has to say and what everybody's tweeting about what their church. All I care about is this. Did God, did people meet with God when they came to church? Was God's presence there? Of author I'd like you to meet as I end tonight is a woman by the name of Frances Havergal. 
She has a great book. If you've never read it, it's, it's from 2, 2 Timothy 2.20. Uh, meet for the master's use. And she's written some of our songs that we have in our hymnal there. And Frances Havergal is a hymn writer. Interestingly, she, uh, she died at the age of 43, very young. The day that she died, she was getting weaker and weaker and her breathing became more shallow. A friend of hers was standing by her. She said... Uh, she asked her friend, she said, could you do me a favor? She said, sure. She get your Bible and read to me from Isaiah 42.6. Her friend read Isaiah 42.6 and it says something like this. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I've taken you by the hand and have kept you. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I've taken you by the hand and have kept you. Frances Havergal stopped her friend from reading anymore. She put her hand out and stopped her. She stopped. Listen to this. She said, um, her voice barely above a whisper, she said, called, held by his hand, kept. Those are promises I can go home on. In a matter of minutes, she went home to be with the Lord. Called, held by his hand, Kept. I'm done. This is true. It's true. It's true. It's true. I said it's true. It's true. It's not fake. It's real. Standing on the promises of Christ my King. It's true. It's real. I'm thankful for the Word of God. It's my bread every morning, my meat every night. It's true. It's true. The Lord has sworn in truth. I said, I'll keep it. Listen, that's why you ought to get saved. Because he promises that you will get saved. You will go to heaven. To as many as received and to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. Is God dead center? What are you doing with the promises? Don't bank on one or two. We're standing on the promises of God. Father, this evening we thank you, Lord, for Psalms 132. And really, it's a picture of our lives. You want us to make promises to you, and you make promises back to us. But David said, I will not rest and go to sleep or do anything until I've found a habitation for the presence of God. Father, forgive me and forgive us. Where it is not evident that you're the priority of our life. Where we can say, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. Would you move us tonight as you did with David? Of having this holy sense of the priority of the presence of God in our life. They're so saturated with your presence. That then and only then 
Will the promises of God be real and fulfilling? Because you said the Lord has sworn in truth. He will not turn from it. Father, you promised to save anyone who comes to you from their sin. For anyone here tonight without Christ as Savior, I pray your invitation would be sweet, would be gentle, yet constraining, compelling, to come to Christ and be saved tonight. Father, I pray for great thirst and hunger in our soul as Christians today. We'd be transformed by the presence of God. We'd come into the presence of God realizing that, Lord, that dead center, everything in our life, must revolve around the presence of God. You've spoken tonight. Your word has done more than I could. Have your way tonight, this evening, as we find our way at the altar to draw close to you. You said, draw near to me, and I'll draw near to you. Have your way tonight, we pray. God, I pray you be glorified. I pray you draw us closer to you now in Jesus' name. Let's stand. I'm going to extend the invitation now. If you need to come, let's find our place with God. If you're not drawn near to God tonight, how close is God the priority of your life? Is God the priority? Listen, the first priority is get saved. Second, first priority is crush Christ. The nearness of God. The nearness of God. Draw near to God tonight. Claim his promises. A Corey Ten Boomer family, they were literally standing on the promises of God. We're standing on promises that cannot fail. When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, we know the living word of God shall prevail, standing on the promises of God. They're true. They're true. They're real. We can only trust the words of men for so far. And then we need to realize we need to trust entirely in the word of God. Father, you alone are holy, righteous, great, gracious, compassionate, merciful, and loving. We bow our hearts to you this evening to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to leave tonight closer to you than we were when we came in. Help us to sense your presence this Thanksgiving week with family and friends and our individual time with God. Thank you for the promises that never fail. Thank you, your word is true. Dismiss us with your blessing. Bless every home, every individual here this evening. Well, thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.